0: Uh, you might know the name Michael Ramsden. He's a co-worker with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. He tells a story about an Iranian pastor who was driving through northern Iran with his wife. Now they came to a small village where they stopped to buy some water. So the pastor stops the car. He notices a man leaning against the wall of the shop that was there. It was a bearded man holding a machine gun. The wife sees the man's gun and his face. She takes a Bible that she has in the car that's in the Farsi language, puts it in her husband's pocket and she says, give that man a Bible. Her husband looks at the man's beard, (laughs) looks at the gun and says, no. She says, no, 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 seriously, give it to him. Really, please, give him the Bible. And so the husband says, I'll pray about it. He goes into the shop, comes out with the bottles of water, and they drive away. The wife looked at her husband. You didn't give him the Bible, did you? He said, no. I prayed about it. It wasn't the right thing to do. What would you have done? Give him the Bible. Bible. Do you think he did the right thing? Did he do the wrong thing? Don't know. Well, here's what else you don't know. That's not the end of the story. But I'm not going to read that to you until we get to the end of the sermon. Oh that awful I know that I have said to you way too many times that that grace is a mystery. You know that, right? You've heard that. Yes, yeah. grace is a mystery. It really really is. We we believe, okay, I believe, I'm assuming that you do too. If you don't, you need to we believe God is always at work in his world, working through circumstances that affect people's lives in ways that will reveal himself to them. He's doing it according to his purposes, according to his good plan. And here's the thing. He doesn't necessarily inform us at every Turn every point of that plan. He doesn't consult with us about our opinions. He doesn't seek our expertise. He doesn't even need the vast amount of wisdom that we bring into this world of ours. And I think that's what makes it exciting. It makes The mystery of grace, exciting, partnering with God on His, His, his gracious, redemptive mission in the world. Doing his bidding, without a doubt, I think can be the most exciting yet mysterious adventure in which any of us could ever share. Now, that story that we started with reminded me of our text this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at one more story in the life of Peter as we wrap up this, this four-Sunday journey with Peter. Remember, it's post-resurrection Peter. We have seen the difference. We know the difference, big difference, between pre-resurrection and post-resurrection Peter. And I have been been saying to you from, from the very start that I believe the difference is the result of two very significant truths, two very significant realities in Peter's life. Jesus' unconditional love communicated to Peter when he restored him that day on the Galilean seashore and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, filling him with with power to live as a witness for Jesus. I I believe those two realities changed Peter. And, And honestly, don't think me a heretic for saying this, but I think the dawning of the love of Jesus in Peter's heart and mind in a huge way, I think is as significant as the Spirit filling Peter at Pentecost. They really do. It's easy to focus upon the coming of the Spirit and look what the Spirit did. Well, here we are, many of us, recipients of what the Spirit did and continues to do. But does the unconditional, outrageous, never-ending, reckless love of God in Christ to us put us in a place where we are motivated to live in response to the promptings and the leadings of the Spirit of God? I just think if we don't, really ponder, if we don't ponder, as those in Aroostook County, Maine would say, if we don't ponder the work of the Spirit in the lives of God's people, if we don't spend time thinking about the amazing love of God to those of us who were wandering, to those of us who still wander the unconditional, reckless love of God that has redeemed us and brought us into his family, saved us from ourselves, saved us from eternity apart from God, the one who we were created for, unless that starts to rattle around in our brains and get in touch with our heart and, and, and make its way out into our, our hands and our feet and, and our tongues, there's a part of me sounding much like a heretic, that would say, so what good is the Spirit? What good is the Spirit? Peter found that the Spirit did lots of good. I think if we could ask Peter, if he knew that Jesus loved him all through their ministry years together, I'm pretty sure that Peter would say yes. But I'm suspicious that it took Peter's colossal fail. His denial of Jesus after boasting that he never would, he'd go with him to the death. I think it took that colossal failure that must have sent him into a pretty dark despair to till the soil of his heart and open it to the truly magnificent and unbelievable love and forgiveness that Jesus extended to him following the resurrection. You remember Peter's heart struggle that all he could offer to Jesus was, was the love of a dear friend. Jesus, do you love me? And the implied there is, Peter, do you, do you love me like I love you? And Peter's response is, Jesus, I love you. I love you like a dear friend, like a brother, like a family member. It's all he could do. It's all any human heart can do. And that's where Jesus met him. So I hope that one of the things that we've learned is that, that we're like Peter. I think the story of Peter is often the story of us. We've failed Jesus in many ways. We find ourselves in Peter's denial. And, and we know, if we are really honest, we know that we do not love him as, as we ought. Because our heart, our heart is attracted to other things. We're creatures of 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 fear. We, We fear the unknown. We fear uncertainty. We're concerned about safety and future circumstances just like Peter was. But the love of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit changed Peter from fearful to courageous to confident and convinced. And I believe Peter's transformation is a picture of every believer's transformation our transformation, the specifics are going to be different in how it plays itself out in our lives. But as Peter became a confident, courageous, convinced witness for Jesus, so can we. Dare I say, so should we be as Peter was. And so one more lesson this morning from Peter's life. And my hope is that, that we can be astonished <clears throat> at the grace of God at work in the lives of others where we might never expect it. And and I've said this to you before so forgive the repeat, but we're weird about grace. We understand it theologically, but practically it sort of rubs us the wrong way. You know, theologically we're astute and we know that grace is undeserved, but but somehow or another, I just like to think that, that something that I've done, maybe it was something that my grandparents did, put me in a place to be a little bit more deserving of grace than those people for whom I don't really want them to experience God's grace. Are you with me on that? You never feel that way, right, about anybody? All right, I am the only sinful, wretched individual in the room. Uh, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. God's grace shows up in the lives of others where we might never expect it. Maybe we don't want it to. I think this is the piece that truly makes this adventure of following Jesus an exciting one. And so, Don, can we put that first slide up, we're introduced in Acts chapter 10 to our story with these verses. Verses 1 and 2 say it's Caesarea. By the way, when I was in Israel, my Israeli guide pronounced that Caesarea. Caesarea. There's a reason for that. So we say at Caesarea, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. So, a little history here. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, And it was named after Caesar Augustus. Herod the Great, a Jew, named the city after Caesar Augustus. You can imagine how that endeared him to the Jews. Caesarea was the center of Roman administration for all of Palestine, served as the capital of The province of Judea, the Romans saw it, viewed it as the capital city in that region. The Jews, we know for the most part, hated Caesarea. They hated all that it stood for. And we find evidence in history that that they often spoke of Caesarea as if it had no part in Judea. Romans may think of it as an important place. We think of it as non-existent in Judea. It was a showpiece for Roman culture. And though it was a Jewish city, historians believe that there were more Gentiles than Jews living in Caesarea in the first century. Now, according to Josephus, second century historian, it was riots between Jews and non-Jews in Caesarea, that sparked the Jewish rebellion against Rome that ultimately led to the destruction of Jerusalem it was not a popular place. And so we have a high-ranking soldier, Roman soldier, hated by the Jews, living in a very Roman city hated by the Jews. Let me ask you, do you sense a setup here? Yeah. Oh, and this this Roman soldier, he's very religious. Luke tells us that, that he prayed regularly and that one day at about three in the afternoon, which, by the way, was one of the Jewish prayer times, this Roman soldier is praying. And the angel of God appeared to him in a vision and addressed him by name. Cornelius, said the angel. Let's stand and read the rest of the story. I've abbreviated the story. I've tried to just pull the, 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 the major ideas. So there are some places in here where there's some gaps. Um, just because it's a long, long story and You would all faint from weariness standing here. So here we go together. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, He fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Okay, here is the part in the story where they explain to him why they've come. It's because our boss has had this vision from an angel that we're supposed to come and get you because you've got a message for us. Okay, here we go. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Whoa, did you see that? He invited who into his house to be guests? Yeah. Okay, the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent, or I came without raising any objection, may I ask why you sent for me? And at this point, Cornelius tells him the whole story. This is what happened. And so we've called you here, and I've gathered my family because we want to hear what you have to say to us. Next. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Wow. Let that sink in. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Woo-hoo! Be seated. Oh, what a story. What a story. It is it is so packed with with contrasts and and surprises that that revolve around what Peter knew ahead of time and what he did not know. And so I want to put up two statements on the screen that I think really express the lesson learned from Peter's mouth. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Okay. Now, I want you to wrestle with this question. Answer seems obvious. What is the lesson that Peter learned? And what did it take for him to learn it? Put the lesson into our language. We we don't use language of unclean. What's, What's the lesson? Talk to your neighbor for a couple of minutes. Okay, we ready? There's a lot of conversation in here, so I am just excited about what you have to share. Ah, it's like a morgue. <laughs> what do you think? What's the lesson? And what did it take? Peter needs things in threes, doesn't he? And the way to a man's heart is through <laughs> stuff. Well put, well put. What else? Someone else, what do you think? Add to it. You know, I, theologically, I might tweak that just a tad and say, everyone is undeserving. Therefore, that makes us all in the same boat. And then we can look at that as deserving. So, <laughs> Ella, I see that hand back there. Speak loud. That nothing was unclean. What did unclean mean? Does anybody know? Not blessed by God, not useful not purposeful. If we, if we understand that language coming from, from the Old Testament, it's, it's the idea of, of common. Something is just common versus something for noble use. We'll, we'll do more with that in just a minute. I think, I think without doubt one of the darkest times in our nation's history was the years of slavery. Slavery. 89 years, officially, from 1776 to 1865. But the first load of Africans were dropped off on the eastern shore in Jamestown in 1619, which means that slavery existed for almost 250 years. Oh, and the most troubling piece of that ugly 250 years in my mind, is that many people who claimed to be followers of Jesus didn't have a problem with slavery. And you know why? Because they didn't believe that Africans were fully human, they were a lesser creation. And of course, the next horribly dark period would be the civil rights era, which revealed that the mindset of so many people regarding the humanity of Africans still hadn't changed. Unbelievable. I'll never forget, as a college student, we were traveling south, I went to school in Chicago area, and... Being a part of the track team, we had difficulty training in the springtime outside because the snow drifts were still so high from the winter. So we piled into a bus and drove south to Mississippi, Tennessee. We would train down there for spring break for a week and, and compete against some of the local schools that were there. Somewhere in the middle of the night, you know, you're bouncing along and riding in this bus and we stopped for fuel and we're pretty much out in the middle of nowhere, and I'll never forget, walking around to the back of the building where there were three doors. Men, women, and coloreds. This was 1977. Lesser human beings. You see, a Jew in the first century, living under the rule and the oppression of the Romans, would have had a similar attitude toward them. It would have been that sense of Romans are worthless. Romans are just common or less than common. Romans are not noble as we are noble. Peter's vision pushed against rules that really were part of his identity. As a Jew, Peter knew exactly what was permissible to eat and and not to eat. And for Peter, up to this point, life was made up of categories. And two big categories in his life were clean and unclean. Clean was acceptable. And unclean or common was an unacceptable category. And the Jews were to have nothing to do with the common. The common was no good. The common was to be avoided. However, God was up to something. He was, he was redefining some categories. He was pushing Peter, I think, to come to grips with the truth that food groups... And people groups had, in many ways, become too similar in Peter's life. The Romans would have fallen into the category of no good, no use, to be avoided at all costs. And here, I think, is where the lessons begin for us. For Peter and for us. God knew that Peter's heart and and ours, though his heart no doubt was growing and stretching as a result of redemption, was going to need a push to get over this, this next hurdle of being a witness to the world. A world that was not very far away from where he was living. Enter Cornelius, who Luke has told us was a God-fearing man and a generous man and one who prayed faithfully. What is that about? He doesn't tell us more. What does, what does God-fearing mean and, and, and why would he be generous? And by the way, to whom is he praying? <clears throat> Luke gives us no definition. But we are also told in that part of the story that Cornelius was always, was, was, was respected by many of the Jews in that town. What, do, what are we to make of that? So I think... I think there are, there are a bazillion lessons here. I've, I've got three for us this morning. You know, we preachers seem to do things in threes. It's a Trinitarian approach, to. <laughs> Thank you, like Peter. Actually, there's a, there's a fourth one, too, but that comes at the very end and is quick. Lesson number one. I'm not sure that Peter would have considered God at work in a Roman soldier's life. But lesson number one is this, that God is always at work. God is always at work, and I think we need to count on him being at work in places where we can't imagine that God would be at work. It's his world. And he is working out his plan. And God's grace precedes any efforts that we might make to reveal him to others as witnesses for Jesus. Either to reveal him or to keep him hidden, depending on how we might feel about those others in our lives. And here's the deal that, Those others, whether we like them or not, whether we want to admit to assigning a category of no good and common to certain groups of people for what they believe or for how they live, you can add to the list. Those people in that category are precious to God to God. Loved by God. And it's here that we need to get rid of our weirdness that I was referring to about grace earlier and remember that in a category of deserving and undeserving, we're all in the undeserving category. Regardless of what a person looks like or acts like or lives like or believes Undeserving is the category that humanity falls into. Grace is the miracle that brings humanity out of that category. Make sense? Corey Ten Boom once said that <clears throat> there is no deep pit in human experience for which God's love is not deeper still no deep pit no how no matter how far down the hole we may think of a certain person or a certain group of people god's grace is at work in that pit that we perhaps have assigned them to. No one is beyond the reach of God and we do not get to determine in our attitudes and our actions who is deserving of God's grace. How how dare we would do that? No one got to determine that for us but God. Peter says, but God... Has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. What an admission through the back door. <laughs> He's basically saying I really put Romans in the category of useless. I put Romans in, in the category of, of hopeless. I put Romans in the category of subhuman. Peter was learning that people are not to be assigned to categories of useful or useless, common or noble, because God is at work. And God is the one who takes everyone who is uncommon and redeems them for noble purposes. God is at work. God is always at work. I need to remember that more. Somehow that needs to be a mantra in our lives. We walk out the door of our homes every morning. God is at work. Can't wait to see where that happens. Gee, I hope it doesn't happen in my boss's life because he's a real jerk. God is at work, say our students, but uh, I hope it doesn't happen in that student's life because he is just, He cheats. He's foul-mouthed. I hope God's grace is not at work there. Now, we'd never say those things. But I wonder sometimes if our actions belie what it is that we really think. God is always at work. And we need to expect that. Lesson number two, a witness makes life about others and not about self. I think one of the things that gets in our way, certainly gets in my way, being a witness to people is that that we're more concerned about us than we are about them. Which is really illogical when you think about that. What will they think of me? What will they say to me? Or what will they say about others to me? What will they do to me. I can imagine that Peter might have had some of these concerns as he's on his way to the house of a Roman soldier. Romans are not nice, thinks Peter, especially Roman soldiers. But God was clear. Peter had to go, and he went with just the little bit of knowledge that he had you know, I think one of the things that is fun about this story, the, the bigger picture as we step back and look at all that's going on, is is God's grace at work behind the scenes? I sometimes wonder if God's grace behind the scenes is his best work, because then nobody gets to take credit for it. His work behind the scenes that Peter didn't know ahead of time. God's, God's timing, his his visions to both. By the way, did you notice the contradiction in Peter's response to the vision? Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. He recognized the voice as divine, as God, and said no. Not doing it. Cornelius' response, on the other hand, the useless one, the common one, what is it, Lord? And then obeys without hesitation. Just a fun little aside. As followers of Jesus who are called to be witnesses for Him, we need to remember that that witnessing is about others and what God is already doing in their lives things that that we can't possibly know. Our God who lives outside of our time restraints, past, present, future, just working in the eternal present, stringing things together, circumstances, as some say, just weaving this, this marvelous mosaic together on fabric. You look at the back side and it's kind of disjointed in pieces here and pieces there. But but the front side is the perspective that God has on the work that he's doing in the lives of people in this world. Fantastic. A witness makes life about others and not about self. We, We acknowledge that God, we must acknowledge that God is at work and that he has already gone before us. We can come to a scenario with all kinds of of ideas of who or what or or why or why not. if we choose to speak up, I think that there's a, a good chance that we might get in on something that God is doing. Something that God is doing. making witnessing about others versus making the the process of witnessing and and remember we we stated from the beginning that that to be a witness is just to tell of our experience of Jesus people can think you're nuts for that that's okay we're just going to tell them of our relationship with Jesus which means that we Probably ought to be busy and earnest and intentional about cultivating a relationship with Jesus, in order to be those witnesses. Lesson number three: I think prayer positions us to hear from God, not exclusively. But I think that that's that's a lesson that we can we can pull from from here. Both of these men heard from God while in prayer. One a believer and, and one a God-fearer. Did you know that there are countless stories of Jesus revealing himself around the world to Muslims? Oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's on the internet all the time. In ministries that are, that are working in, in countries that are predominantly Muslim where the Christian faith is either outlawed or or. You know, very, very marginalized. Scripture is scarce. Countless Muslims encountering Jesus in dreams. Modern day stories of of Cornelius, and I, I, I think that I think that visions and, and, and ideas, kingdom ideas, can often come to us in our times of prayer, for me. I know that, that my prayer times are the times when God brings certain people to mind and, and I'm able to pray for those folks, people that I haven't thought about lately or for some time. How's your prayer life as a, as a witness for Jesus? You know, is it, is it, is it perfunctory in our lives? doing anything other than saying prayers about ourselves and our needs or or are we prayerfully partnering with God as Father in in a way that that stirs our hearts? God, I believe you're at work in this world. What are you doing today and where do you want to include me? I heard someone say, they had a pastor who asked them one time if, if your prayers were answered, would anything happen in anyone's life besides yours? It's a great question. Do we rise from our times of prayer hoping and expecting to see God at work in our daily lives? I think prayer positions us to hear from God because prayer is a is a posture of surrender. Prayer is is a statement of dependence upon our God. All right. Lesson number four. This is the bigger picture. My goodness, witnessing makes for great stories that we get to share with one another. I fear sometimes that we make being a follower of Jesus, I make being a follower of Jesus, Terribly boring. Why would we do that? In Acts 11, Peter got into trouble. Read chapter 11 this afternoon. Got into trouble. Peter, we heard you went to the house of a Roman. That was a bad thing to do. Can you imagine? We get a little bit of Peter's response, but... I think there's great emotion in that story. Oh, let me tell you what God had done. Let me tell you what I witnessed. Let me tell you what I heard. Basically, what Peter says to the church authorities, I didn't have any choice. God made it very clear that he had redeemed these people for himself. So, na 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 The fun stories that we hear when God calls us to to break some of the rules of of comfort and and protocol and and people that, that we should or shouldn't hang out with, depending on our categories or those that others assign. My brothers and sisters, witnessing makes for great stories because it's ultimately the story of what God is doing in the lives of people, in his world, for his glory. And that needs to make our hearts sing. So praise team, why don't you uh, work your way on up? And I will conclude this morning with prayer and the rest of that story. So you remember... The wife looked at her husband and said, you didn't give him the Bible, did you? And he said, nope, I prayed about it. It wasn't the right thing to do. (laughs) His wife responded, you should have given him one. He disagreed, and they went back and forth for a while. So the wife bowed her head, and she prayed out loud, fervently, that her husband might listen to God. At that point says Ramston, they had a friendly discussion, you know, the kind that married couples have from time to time that ends with the words, the husband looking at his wife, fine, if you want me to die, I will. (laughs) The husband turned the car around, went back into the village. He got out of the car, he walked up to the man with the beard and the rifle and placed a Bible in his hands. The man looked at the Bible He began to open it and thumb through it and tears filled his eyes. He said, this is unbelievable. I don't live here. He said, I I live about three days walk from here. But three days ago, an angel appeared to me and told me to walk to this village and wait until someone had given me the book of, of life. Thank you for giving me this book. What are the ways, brothers and sisters, that God wants to to use us, to use you and to use me? But but we just we just aren't listening. We just aren't expecting. We just aren't dialed in to the seriousness of this mission that God has called us into. This isn't follow Jesus, live your life, and then go to heaven. This is follow Jesus now. Follow Jesus into the adventure of our lives. May the love of Jesus, unconditional and amazing and the indwelling Holy Spirit, move us from people being people who are fearful and uncertain to people who are confident and courageous, astonished, and always expectant at what God is doing in his world and in the lives of people. Amen.